If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success report. Six Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. It's that time of uh, the cycle, bro. Are you ready to vote? Vote. Yeah, man. Um, I am. This is. Uh, I'm really excited about. Uh, really excited about this. Uh, this go around, in regards to the party platforms and just learning a lot. Um, not so much excited to you know go out to vote but more so excited about the exchange of ideas if that sounds weird yeah i mean it's i think i think we're in a dynamic time um you know there's a couple like like the conservative party essentially split into two um i think you know we're also in a media era where you know things are at a different stage than they were the last time trudeau which sounds almost weird, but um, in terms of even polarization, I mean, you know, I think of things like the fact that socialism isn't a dirty word anymore. Um, but for our parents' generation, it was like grotesque. Um, and I find that interesting. Uh, but I, I think it's actually going to result in something better for us as, as the population. Uh, and what I'm about to say, most people will think I'm crazy. And that is well, everything you I say <laughs> sounds crazy. More, yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> but that's because I would say, for the most part, my ideas are libertarian. Well, libertarian, but they're also outside of the mainstream. Of course, and, and, yes, yes. And most of the time, I've come to them logically and thoroughly researched, mm-hmm. um, and the mainstream ideas tend to straw man my ideas so that they're not even engaged with yeah yeah um and and what i was about to say was every election the number one thing that i'm hoping for is a minority government why is that less will get done Hmm. okay okay good 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 which means (laughs) me as the you know citizen less of my Less change will happen, which mm-hmm. will be less disruptive, mm-hmm. even if it's for the good. Like, arguably, you know, I make plans today based on the laws today, and then you turn around and change them, and five years from now, those ch- those decisions that I made were no longer the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, but, that, that's a very interesting perspective. Um, yeah, no, that's very interesting. I never considered that. Um, well, in light of a light of yeah, that that um, that concept. And looking at change and and what's to come, we today we're gonna look at the debate, the federal leaders debate that happened in Ottawa. Um, so we basically uh, we're gonna look at that and look at the four m- m- particular questions that uh, well, all the questions are a reflection of what was on the minds of. Canadians, but then there were four that we found that that kind of nuanced the heart of what is 
going on in the minds of Canadians, but also the it also reflects and shows a lot about the party's response to these controversial questions and how the questions were asked. So just real quickly, Joel, uh, what was your take of the debates? Well, did you, hold on, so you listened to the English one, but not the French, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I figured that was good enough for me. <laughs> okay, because um, okay, I, I, I listened to the, the French and the English. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what what was your experience taking in the French one? I, I just thought, oh, uh, I'm going to have to... I, I, I was expecting it was going to be subtitled and um, no, it was going to be more work than I wanted. So I was like, uh, yeah. I, and I thought yeah. it was going to be based on... I don't know why I based it on this. I thought it was going to be very much the same. I didn't expect... I mean, obviously, there might be a different, slightly different, um, you know, answer to something that might nuance and might come out. But for the most part, I expected it to be the same. Um, So would you say that my assumption was right, that it was very much the same? Um, Or would you say that it was worth your time to watch it twice in two different languages? And and, and what was that for the... let's, Let's assume most of the listeners didn't watch the... Um, well, maybe they didn't watch either, but let's assume they didn't watch the French one. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe the experience to the listener? Uh, the, uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the French one. It wasn't as much work as I thought it was going to be. Uh, I kind of like just listened to the first three minutes and then I ended up listening to the whole thing. Um, so I would say that again, uh, they had the, they didn't have the, um, closed caption, but they had to release it on YouTube and then have the persons uh, translate their French into English. So it was a bit difficult because they had the, you could still hear the French in the background and then the English guy speaking over them. So it, it made it a little bit difficult. I would have preferred them to cut out the audio from the French and I can just hear the English and it would play like an old uh, Kung Fu movie. <laughs> right? I'd prefer, like dubbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd prefer that. But no, it was really good. It was really good, uh, the French debate in that. There, there were different questions. It wasn't the same questions as you were getting in the English. And so you, you were getting more... Was it the same themes? Because they had like five the same themes. themes. The... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. Generally the same themes, but but it was different questions. Uh, stuff about assisted suicide, um, elderly pensions. And then, of course, like the key ones that came up, uh, uh, climate change, right? And uh, Bill 21... Yeah, and those kind of things were coming up. So again, so so there's overlap with, with the key ideas, but then there was other nuance that I, like stuff that I know. Honestly, Joel, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from the French debate, based on the fact that I didn't know anything going in. Okay. So I walked away a lot smarter, um, and a better understanding of uh, the country and how it runs. So I, I so I enjoyed it for that. Uh, but okay. what was your take on on the debate in general? Uh I mean. You know, I'm 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 the you know, the, I'm the guy on our show who listens to like thousands of hours of, of audio a year. Um and so when it comes to a two hour, you know, debate, my first instinct is like, we're gonna learn almost nothing. Um, right, why and that? and then well, structure, um and you know, interrupting, right? So how often would we really get, you know, maybe we got the odd spot where a speaker was speaking for like 40 seconds. But there was almost nothing beyond, 
you know, a four, 40 second remark. Most of it was like 20 and then someone else was interrupting because it was a debate. Um, and so, you know, it was a very, like my, my thought, you know, I, I contrast that with the Joe Rogan podcast where someone's on there for three hours and just articulating their thoughts and their ideas and walking through something. Um, you know, I would have personally rather had two hour audios from every speaker that I could listen to where all of these questions were, you know, hashed out for, and and obviously you lose a little bit of, you know, the back and forth. And so maybe I'm talking, I'd rather see, you know, two people talking, you know, so I would have rather watched for two hours, literally, you know, Bernier and, you know, uh, May, I keep wanting to call her Teresa May. What's Elizabeth May. Elizabeth May. Um, you know, I would rather listen to them for two hours go back and forth. Um, and and the reason I pick those two is because the liberals and the conservatives, for the most part of this debate, was so much of like, I attack the other person and tell you why that why the liberal the conservatives are the worst option, and the liberals. Or, or, and the conservatives are telling you why the liberals are the worst option. Because it's really a two-party race with a couple tails in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and this was a first to have all six platforms uh, debating back and forth. So, this, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I listened to, uh, there was a debriefing, the 2019 uh, uh, Federal Leaders Debate on TVO. Um, I listened, to, I found it as a podcast, so I was able to listen to that. And, you know, there were some pretty big critiques regarding uh, the structure, mm-hmm. which they, they were the ones that brought up the idea that, like, the fact that we, they're like, I love the fact that we had four women moderators, but the fact we kept five. switching, five or women. five, sorry, five women moderators, but yeah. the fact they kept switching moderator, they found actually to be unproductive. Uh, the tone changed. I think the way that they moderated changed. And so, you know, I, I find, I, you know, my thought is like, okay, so we probably had five in order to represent diversity there's probably a diverse amount of thought which is not necessarily a bad thing mm-hmm. but diversity for the sake of diversity is meaningless like i want the diversity to produce a better product i don't mm-hmm. want the diversity because i need to virtue signal that i value diversity mm-hmm. yeah. right um you know that's and that's where i think uh i, I believe bernie brought it up at one point in the debate and he made the idea of like I think he called out someone, I want to say, uh, the Green Party, He's or it was actually probably Trudeau, saying, actually, you know what? It was probably Sheer calling out Trudeau, saying, you don't value diversity of ideas. You only value diversity of... You know, like, and, and, and I would say va- diversity of ideas is the most important aspect to um, to politics. Because at the end of the day... You know, unfortunately, the way our system works is whoever had the majority governs the minority to their detriment, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the diversity of people are governed in a manner that best meets the individual's needs. You know, Bernier, and this is where, and Bernier was granted an exemption. I don't know what the standards were, but apparently there was a, you know, they they granted exceptions to have all these six people up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think technically Bernier and the block leader shouldn't have been there, apparently. Um, I'm, I'm glad they made the exemption for Bernier because I 
found that for many questions, it was like, oh, you have the same answer, and you have the same answer, and you have the same answer. Um, even if people disagree what he has to say, the fact that, you know, we're contrasting ideas. Like, if your idea can't handle being contrasted, how do you even know your idea is that good? Just because it's settled or, you know, popular opinion. Um, that doesn't actually make it a good idea. It just means that more people believe it. Like, more people believe lobotomy was a good thing at one point in time. Uh, yeah, let's walk that one back. Um, but anyways, I know I've kind of gone on a rant and a rave here. Yeah, no, because no, you're uh, excited. It's because you're excited. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, you know, a part of it's funny is, like, watching it was painful at because, like, I, I to be honest, I never watched these things. I only watched it because we're going to do a podcast on it. Um, now, I would say since we've started the podcast, I probably become more interested in it because I feel like I need to be able to answer if someone asks me a question about it. Well, it's funny you say that because the feedback I got from a lot of people was that it was a mess or that it was confusing. Uh, but I don't know, man. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. Uh, and I guess I'm not trying to be Mr. Positive. I'm trying to be Mr. Objective here. And yeah, I thought it was super beneficial. And I, for me, like my psychological makeup is that I, I overanalyze people. That's my thing. I like, mm-hmm. I like analyzing people and not just taking what they say at face value. So I analyze the way they dress. So the way how they were dressed on stage I was, you know, looking at analyzing what they were wearing and the color schemes and their ties and so forth because it told me a lot about them as people. But also I was listening for what they weren't saying. And I guess for me as a Christian uh, and coming out of uh, a church that wasn't preaching expository in that the preaching wasn't the best. So I'm used to hearing rhetoric. You're You're not wrong. Mm-hmm. But I want to clear, like, the reason, what's the reason you have that ear? The reason why I have that ear is because I have principles in which to interpret. So if you... But like, you're, I'm sorry, you're also, you're doing the due diligence yourself. Yes, yes, yes. Right? But, like, but part of you is, have an opinion on that text, or you've broken down text before, yeah, such that when yeah. you hear someone breaking down text poorly, you're like, wait a second, that's not right. Or that doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. Or what about this, right? Mm-hmm. And so my point is that, or the reason I wanted to cut you off was to say, like, you got to do your homework. you got to be in a position to call out BS. Otherwise, he ain't talking what's about the rest study. of... <laughs> well, well, in this case, yes. But, but like, I'm trying to extrapolate your, your example to say, you know, what about the rest of the congregations that's sitting under the bad preaching? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That doesn't know it's bad preaching. Mm-hmm. Right and right. Uh, so that's my point. So how do we contrast? Wait, uh, and and oh, so maybe I'm just reiterating the, your point for you. But now, when you're listening to the equivalent of bad preaching, mm-hmm. yeah. So you, you you have you have eyes to he- eyes to see and ears to hear. So coming into a sermon, you know, if you if you're able to do the reading before you do your reading before and you make up your mind before you go into the sermon. So that way you're able to contrast ideas with the speaker on the fly. So for Christians who come out of that background, you know, they're naturally 
critically inclined to uh, hearing and interacting with what's being said. So it's the same thing with a political debate. I felt like it was the same thing. So because I've been doing the show for so long, I don't consider myself, uh, you know, the most politically savvy person. But because of, you know, doing the show and because of my Christian background, I'm, I'm a naturally I'm a critical thinker and then I'm a very analytical person. So I was really listening for what was not being said and listening for the rhetoric and terms that were being thrown around. So I got a lot out of the debate and I felt like if you if you came to the debate with the right mindset, you would you would get everything you need to need to know. And all the little details about policies and numbers, you can go look that up for the sake of your own fancy. But I think there were key elements or key discussions or questions that were being asked and how they were being asked was saying a lot about the Canadian people. I think for the listener who's not going in or the, you know, the, the audience member who's not going in as intently as you, like I went in very intently because I'm like, I got to record a podcast on this. I got to pay attention. I got to listen. You know, me being a nerd, I bust out a spreadsheet. I start writing down every question. You, know, you did a spreadsheet? A yeah, I did a spreadsheet. <laughs> I, I live in spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so. Okay, well, hold on. Hey, so, hey Joel, hey, are you okay with sharing it with the. With well, the yeah, yeah. Shoot me an email or shoot us an email, sixcentsreport at gmail.com, and I'll send, I'll send it back to you. If you really want to see what I wrote, um, but I'm not just gonna, you know, drop it, drop it online. Yeah, but, but it's pretty, it's pretty um, thorough, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, and part of that's because I want to be like, so going in as intently. One, I start noticing the structure, and I and I wonder, you know, how much of the criticisms that that were posted through TVO and stuff about the talking they they criticized the amount of talking over each other, the amount of speakers was bad, um, you know. And and I wonder how much of that was because, you know, they're doing the, they're thinking of it from the eyes of the person who's not paying attention. So hopefully, you know, our discussion for the listener going forward would be able to help them uh, think through these things. But I just want to uh, let them know what we're going to address. Though the four topics uh, deal with the theme one: uh, leadership in Canada and the world. Theme two: polarization, human rights, and immigration. And then theme three indigenous issues we skipped um we skipped uh theme four which was about affordability and income security and then we go to uh, theme five environment and energy the the first aspect of uh theme one leadership in canada and the world they were talking about polarization that was like the big overarching theme polarization human rights and immigration and it almost seemed like they singled out Maxime Bernier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his, yeah. And, and like a bunch of his, they basically went to his tweets and I was just like, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh shoot, they're going to this guy's tweets. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> so, of course, they Yeah, but you know what's funny is like with question one and question two, or sorry, like section one, section two, question one, question two, Um, I definitely felt there was a, like, and, and I mean, they kept reiterating, this is random. We've, you know, things have been randomly selected to be in this order. Anyways, I, I just was like, when I first, when we first, when I first sat down, I'm like, oh my goodness, it almost feels like a setup. Um, yeah. Now, again, they said it was random. I'll trust that it was random, but it was, it was definitely like he was in the crosshairs at the start for everybody. And it was like, you know, for all parties across the board, it's like, you're dangerous. Nobody will should vote for you. Like, let's get rid of this guy. Um, you know, be done with you. This will be the only time the People's Party exists, and and you know, move on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, anyways, that would that like, so in that line when they brought up his tweets, um, and they brought up different things, I definitely thought it was a bit of straw manning in the sense of, 
um, let's not engage his ideas. Let's uh, just paint him as this radical uh, and put him off in the corner. Okay, so let me read the question that was asked and then uh, Bernie's response. So the question was, many, many Canadians have felt the implications of a divided world, more so than in 2015. From U.S. protectionism to Brexit to our growing tensions with China, a prime minister, as prime minister, how would you effectively defend both the interests and values of Canadians on the world stage? And then Maxime, you know, everybody gave their the the standard answer, and then Maxime said, first of all, thanks for the question. You must tell the truth to Canadians if you want to be the leader of this country. And what I'm saying about extreme multiculturalism, it is not that. Is it is not the way to build this country. Yes, this country is a diverse country, and we must be proud of that. But we don't need the legislation like Multiculturalism Act to tell us who we are. We are a diverse country, and we are proud of that. What I'm saying is, because it's in line with the immigration, I'm saying that we must have fewer immigrants in the country to be sure for these people to participate in our society. So it is a great country, but it's time to have a discussion about the immigration. We don't want our country to be like other countries in Europe where they have a huge difficulty to integrate their immigrants. Yeah, so I mean, I like it's there's another question actually it was like this the we're going to talk about Bill 21, but it was and I thought it, it was right after that Bill 21 question that I think it was an amazing question. And nobody answered it. Like it was essentially like nobody answered the question, and and the question was from UBC. It's and and I have some I've paraphrased it, but this is what I wrote. I wrote Canada is more divided than ever. If diversity and this is what the guy said: if diversity is strength, but division is our weakness, how will you ensure all voices across the political spectrum are heard and considered? And so, you know, I think the only reason I wanted to bring it up, I literally thought that was the best question of the night. And and I, including you know Maxime Bernier, he went back to his immigration answer. Um, I thought in general nobody really addressed this idea of like, yeah, you might value diversity, but division isn't productive, right? So how do you have diversity and without division? And I thought, um, you know, as you were reading Maxime's answer, that's him kind of trying to say like we need to have a conversation about immigration because we don't want to have division we don't want to have and and his point about the uk cannot be like if you're listening to that and you're like oh he's an idiot he doesn't know what he's talking about like no you're you're ignorant to the realities of what he's talking about like there are you know segments within uh i think sweden might be an example of it tim pool is the guy that i've um followed and he's done a bunch of research on this with regards to you know, it's it's really uh, second gener- generation immigrants whose parents were essentially just like secluded into their own. It was like they created a Chinatown, like, and 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 nobody ever integrated. And so now the kids of these immigrants are are still not integrated into the the society. And so um, I think Maxime's, you know, he's worded it so well that he kept saying we need to start having a conversation around immigration, and. And everyone else's answers aren't about a conversation. They're about, I'm just going to do what I think is best. And I don't even care what Canadians think. And if Canadians want less immigration, well, then they're a bunch of racists. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's, I I find it 
you know, from a, you know, an intellectually driven person, I find it discouraging that it's, there's no real desire to learn and to, and when I say learn, what I mean is to put my ideas up on a pedestal to be evaluated, just, you know, discussed and destroyed if they're wrong. What I was looking at, what stuck out to me about that was the Multiculturalism Act and that he would so boldly as take a shot at it. And I was just like, well, you know, like I thought, you know, diversity, multiculturalism is what we hang our hat on. And it's a good thing. But it was just very, it was just very unique for him to step out and be like, okay, well, no, there's a problem with multiculturalism or extreme multiculturalism. Uh, and his and I was just looking into it and and Maxim's issue was like, OK, well, where do we draw the line? And then I found an article by Philip Carl Salzman, who is a professor of anthropology at McGill University. And this was the issue because, you know, I, I didn't really understand what the issue was. So this is what he said the issue was. Every society must have a culture that is to some substantial degree coherent or else chaos will ensue. The second point is Western civilization is our heritage and is valuable and worth defending. And then his third point is democracy requires that majorities, cultural and electoral, must be respected. For these three reasons, it is the duty of immigrants and minorities to adapt to the heritage and, and mainstream culture. And I thought that was fascinating in that he was saying like yeah what you want is that people to or immigrants to adapt to the way we do things in this country so that it maintains the prosperity of the country um yeah it it was it almost came across as like uh, we talked about this before orwellian double speak we talked about George Orwell's book, uh, 1984, and yeah. and and that tweet that uh, that uh, Maxine Bernier had addressing Trudeau and also addressing Scheer, and he was basically saying that the diversity tr- Trudeau is fighting for is a political one, so it redefines terms like racism and gender and fetus and keeps people confused and scared and dependent on the government. So like sexual orientation, race, and gender fall under the economic umbrella of social planning, which uh, translates politically into big government. So the problem with identity politics is that not all gays and blacks and women think alike, right? So Mm -hmm. it was just very interesting that we looked at, you know, Trudeau's extreme multiculturalism. Diversity will divide us into little tribes that have less and less in common apart from their dependence on the government in Ottawa. So more diversity will not be our strength. It will destroy what has made us such a great country. But where we do draw the line, having people live among us who reject basic Western values, such as individualism, equality, the acceptance of thought, tolerance of ideas, that's our strength. You know, I I value what Bernier brings to this conversation as a debate. Because we wouldn't even be talking about this if it was the others. No, 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 no we wouldn't. Right? Like, if Bernier wasn't included, yeah. this topic wouldn't even be up for discussion. Now, yeah. some people might say to you, well, we shouldn't even be talking about this. 
Yeah. And I would say, you know, and that's where I brought up my point about like, no, we should be putting these ideas up for evaluation. Mm-hmm. And and it's sad that so much of our, and this is where like for the most part, I mean, until Bernier was in the race, you know, I would have said, you know, it's really becomes a pot. It's so much more about a popularity contest. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that our election is a popularity contest. Um, I think ideas are actually really important because you're getting, not that we actually have a diverse set of ideas because I don't really think that there's a lot of diversity here, but you do have diversity in, in that, like you've got the liberals and the NDP where you've got the extreme far left um, and we'll get into why I would say that with the NDPs, right? Calling for wealth tax um, yeah. and, and things along those lines. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the liberals that are a little bit more centrist lib- left. Uh, and then within the, conser- you've got this conservative split where, um, you know, it's, I, I mean, the PPCs would say that the conservatives are liberal light. Um, you know, it's, I mean, Michael Malice has this great quote that says, uh, conservatives are progressives wearing seatbelts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for the most part, I would say, yeah, like the conservatives today are the liberals 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I, I just, that's a good point, because even when you address the whole, you know, NDP and, and their leanings and the leader Jagmeet Singh, like he he gets called out for potentially being a hypocrite. So when we look at the second question about polarization, human rights and immigration, the question was asked, okay, so this question is is to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, I want to ask you about Bill 21. Your campaign is about courage, but you have not shown the courage to fight Quebec's discriminatory law. It bars individuals who, like yourself, wear religious symbols for, from some provincial employment. If you were prime minister, would you stand back and allow another province to discriminate against its citizens. Aren't you, and frankly, the other leaders on the stage, putting your own party's interests in Quebec ahead of your principles and the equality rights of all citizens? You have a minute to answer. And uh, yeah, they took them to task. This is a provincial bill for a provincial issue. And and so now it comes down to... Um, and, and I think some of the other leaders brought it up in terms of the various, um, you know, for example, Bernier's answer to when, when they've, you know, kind of followed up. So after um, NDP got to answer, then it goes across and everyone challenges him back and forth, right? So it becomes like a bit of an open debate one-on-one, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bern, or, or sorry, in this case, I think it was just answering the question, you know, for their own concern. So Bernier basically had said, uh, respect the Constitution, and to me, that was the flag like, oh, this is a, he said, provincial jurisdiction. And and for the most part, that's what this comes down to. It's a provincial jurisdiction. Um, and and Shear said the same thing. Conservatives won't intervene because it's provincial jurisdiction. Um, and same with the Green Party, Elizabeth. The Green May. Party, the obviously the bloc's not going to do anything because it's them doing it to themselves. <laughs> well, well, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, he said it was a non-issue. Yeah. So, um, you know, it comes down to respecting the constitutional aspect of the or or the let's call it the legal structure within Canada um or um 
and and so the NDPs are saying like, well, hey, you you know, here's something that's violating people's rights within Canada. Why aren't you doing anything about it? Um, and so I mean, he answers by saying, he, you know, he opposes the all laws that divide, um, but but at the end of the day, he won't intervene. Um, so he's he's saying he's against the law, but he won't do anything to to you know um, to undo the law. He'll Why? allow the and and I I think he's to some extent he's saying oh I'm respecting the fact that it's Quebec's place to make these laws and also you know you need you need those votes from Quebec which kind of caught mm. them in a catch twenty two in the hypocrisy right because in order for them to you know get into office they need that vote from Quebec so you don't want to piss anybody well, they, off yeah I mean taking advantage of a of a you know a seat in Quebec is is a bit of a you know a unicorn. Right there's the odd seat from Quebec that doesn't go to Bloc Québécois. I don't know the actual numbers off the top of my head. I should have looked it up. But you know, if you look at the most recent re- elections, I bet you you never see anywhere near less than seventy five percent going to the Bloc. Um, I I could be dead wrong there, but I'm pretty sure it's that fifty to like over fifty percent of the votes for sure are going to the Bloc. Otherwise, this party would dissolve and go away. Um, so yeah, it's. Yeah, I think you raise a good point that like, well, if the you know people within Quebec want this law, how who am I to, on the federal stage to try to overturn that if I'm also trying to get their votes? Um, mm-hmm. the the I think and you know to to contrast, liberals are actually saying like, hey, I I mean I wrote that he was pandering to discrimination. Who to, that was uh, Trudeau's. Ref- response but then you know he's well, just so no, well, no, well, well yeah we'll try to yeah because trudeau was saying that he he will try to overturn bill 21 and it's kind well, of i mean i was saying he started more... he started with just kind of when i say pandering he's just kind of giving the standard anti-discrimination sort of you know virtue signaling um and maybe i'm being a little uh you know, not generous with my description of his words, but and then he, you know, the point though is really he finishes by saying, "We are the only party that will try to intervene on Bill Twenty One," um, and I think it actually is uh, symbolic of the fact of how the liberals view the law, or view the Constitution, or view the the structure of law within Canada. Um, they more so see it as a roadblock as opposed to a guidance to follow. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No. And I just I thought that was very fascinating, in that it really exposed the hand of all the political parties and the way they saw this issue. Because uh, you know, because Jagmeet Singh, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but throughout the debate, he was kind of positioning himself, or not kind of, he was positioning himself as, you know, the more morally upright, the better man than Sheer and Trudeau and Bernie. And Bernier, of course. And he else. he called out Bernier for like inciting hatred. Yes, you don't deserve a platform. Uh, yes. Your ideas are hurtful. Yes. Like he went in this question, he went after Bernier. Yep. Um, right. And th- and that's why I enjoyed the debate, man. I I, I enjoy con- you know what I enjoy confrontation. Maybe that's why I like the debate. <laughs> but but yeah, you're right. So he was going at him, but then when they asked him the question about Bill Twenty One, then he you know there was a lot of you know general statements being made and you know, just very on the fence. And yeah, I'm like, okay, so, you know, obviously you're wearing a turban and this place would discriminate against you, but yet you're not as gun ho against Quebec. 
So you're not as tough as you were positioning yourself as you were, you know? So I thought mm-hmm. that was like, okay, now, now I see your true colors. Well, and then, and I mean, he then turned it around, right? He's like, well, polarization. He's like, we've been told to fear immigrants as the cause of our inability to pay bills, which is again yeah. a shot at Bernier. Yeah. Um, you know, and then he brings it around. The top aren't paying their fair share. So the whole socialist, you know, or, or um, Marxism, bourgeoisie sort of, you know, arguments being brought into to his responses as well. Um, trying to almost, you know, turn it around and go, yeah, I'm not going to address this, but I still care about all these issues. Right. But, you know, it was also big, too, in response. And like I said, this is the Bill 21 tells you a lot about what the heck is going on. Blanchette's response to Bill 21 and he said this is not even an issue he's like this is not even an issue he's like you know why because 70% of our people voted for this so this is not a controversy in Quebec and you know and I'm sitting there and I'm just you know and I was like wait a minute this is not an issue well if it's not an issue it shows you a lot about the way people in Quebec think because there's no way Bill 21 gets passed in Ontario or anywhere else you know what I mean and at at the end of the day it's uh, a you know, I think for whatever reason, Quebec has a very strong separation of church and state idea. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, that's why they would say, yeah, no religious garb. Yeah, and and that and that yeah. religious garb also includes crosses. So it isn't just uh, whether it's turbans or whatever the case may be or any head covering. It's everything. So you can see the very secularization of, of Quebec and the way the people think there. Well, and, they, and you know, I mean, you know, if I wanted to 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 give it its, you know, a, a strongest uh, argument as possible, they would they would be saying, our goal here is to make it so that there is no religious affiliation appearance on a government position, hmm. right? So you're removing any sort of religious affiliation uh, for government officials, mm-hmm. at least from an appearance perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you know, what? if you say, I never thought about it that way. If you say it that way, then that sounds, um, yeah, okay. I, I, I can I can see where they're coming from with that. Because, yeah, like, you know, automatically, you know, has this negative connotation that these people uh, are racist and discriminating. But, you know, if they're saying you can't wear a cross, what's what's racist about telling somebody not to wear a cross? And, or a turban, mm-hmm. right? Like, the thing is, you know, it's funny is, like, nobody cares that they're telling Christians not to be affiliated with Christianity. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like, you know, but yeah. we're we're in that uh, conversation as well. And and so, hey, if if the population doesn't want religious attire at a taxpayer taxpayer funded position, mm-hmm. like, I, I mean, as much as, you know, you might want to call them racist for it. Well, I would say that's a straw man. You're you're actually not engaging the idea. Well, what like why do they have that perspective? Mm-hmm. I, I To be honest, I don't really know. I mean, that's where, like, you know, I think his the Bloc Québécois response of 70% of the people voted for this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tells you that like, okay, so what the question is really, what is different about the culture here mm-hmm. and the context mm-hmm. that we need to evaluate? Yeah. But again, what did we do? What, and this is where I would criticize the debate. We're not actually having a conversation about the ideas involved here. Yeah, and, but, We're having and, a conversation about how are you going to virtue signal that you think this is a racist? Well, yeah, but also, again, for some people who aren't as, you know, politically savvy or well-versed in politics, there's still something to be learned about the country and the way people think in that, uh, and, and also how people position themselves politically. And and that's why I thought it was very fascinating with, with the NDP representative Jagmeet Singh and how he 
got caught out there in his in his hypocrisy uh, when it came to that bill and how polarization that bill is. So I, I thought it was really good, and hopefully we get to revisit it in the future on the show. I mean, because we don't have much time, but I, I just thought it was a very good dilemma for us to wrestle with. Uh, but with that said, like there's another uh, side of the coin when it comes to the country and like the way we look at one group of people in Quebec, how they are like ha- like they're almost like their own sovereign state and they do their own thing. But then the other side, we have the, another group of people, the indigenous people uh, who are spread out and aren't concentrated in a place. So they, it's so it's made it very difficult for them to want to be able to exercise some kind of sovereignty as their own state. And this has been an ongoing issue. Uh, so theme three is the indigenous issues. And the main principle that if you're not a politics guy and you want to just get an understanding of what's going on with this issue is nobody cares. When it comes to politics and, and as a political uh, policy or platform to address, technically no party really cares about the indigenous issue because... The people are spread out. The people don't vote. So if they don't vote, they don't have money, and they don't spread out, they don't matter. But the sad part is anybody you know who's actually studied the history of Aboriginal people in this country, oh, it's terrible. It's... Yeah. I mean, just go... You know, I think... <gasps> oh, it's uh, terrible. A, a piece of it... I mean, go listen to our episode, Sir John A. MacDonald, or the politically incorrect guide to Sir, Sir John, John A. MacDonald. Yeah, yeah, um, Professor Fott. Um, yeah. yeah, shout out. That, I mean, I, I, I've said this to you before. I think I said it on the show. Like, I learned so much um, just Canadian history listening to that episode mm-hmm. um, or, or be, being you know, on the listening show. to it and listening being to part a, of yeah, it. Professor, yeah. Um, but, and, and, and partly because, like, you know, when I'm in grade 10 or 11 taking Canadian history, like, I don't care. I just want to get the credit <laughs> and get out of there. Right? Like, I'm a yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. This is not interesting to me. I want to go yeah. do math. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I know that's abnormal for Math. people. Oh, all right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm an accountant, bro. Um, but, you know, there's, this is a, you know, a difficult issue because it's also like, think back to the history of like, hey, we had a whole bunch of immigrants come to this country and settle in a country that there was already people there. And then somehow we formed a government and took over that country. And now we need to... You know, we're not in a place today where we could say, let's just undo that and make this Canada country not exist anymore. Okay. So since that's not an option, we need, you know, I think part of the problem with the conversations here are focused a little bit too much on how do we undo the damage as opposed to how do we move forward? Right. Okay. So let me read the question that was asked um, that kind of got this conversation going. So, Mr. Scheer, you said that a conservative government would focus on practical things in its relationship with Canada's indigenous people. As you pursue your promised energy corridor, practically speaking, how will you consult, accommodate, and obtain consent from indigenous peoples? What will you do when your plans come into conflict with indigenous rights and interests? Which is, yeah, it's a weighty question. But that was that was a sentiment of where um, you know where the uh, moderator was coming from in regards to dealing with yeah the indigenous people. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think everyone's answers. So they uh, first sheer answers, and then everybody gets to debate sheer one on one. And I think for the most part, everyone was like, "Well, you're ignoring the rights of the indigenous." No, you're ignoring the rights of the indigenous. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just this like virtue signaling response. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, because the second the question that followed after this was essentially, "How will you work with the provinces to respect indigenous rights?" And they references the UN statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I felt like it was very much the same, like in line with what you said is like nobody really cares. They just want to give the portrayal that they care and they're going to do as much as they can. But because, you know, for for the, you know, the layman who's not affected by indigenous rights, as long as I think they care, I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. Right. So as long as the voting class thinks you care, that's all that matters. Right. And then like because, yeah, part of it is like my heart goes out to the people. Partly because, yes, you know, so it's a it's a tough situation, but especially, you know, like looking at it from as as a black male and the narrative that surrounds the black community of, you know, being marginalized and disenfranchised, you know, I I, I kind of understand. And I always kind of look at them and I'm like, hmm, like I know what black people's problem is, I'm like, but what's aboriginal people's problem? <laughs> you know that's what and I was so, so for the at. listener they're like what do you mean Darnell what's black people's problem <laughs> no well you know yeah. it's one of those things where like I said um, because of you know my experience my worldview, you know there's just more the narrative the black narrative is something I'm I'm privy to and it's, it's a constant conversation that I'm in whether it's at school or at home or at church or whatever the case may be but I guess my attention floats over to the aboriginal side and I'm like, okay, so yeah, so so what's their problem? In that they almost seem worse off than black people. Like if you're really looking at, okay, well, who's worse? Well, well eh, I think I think Aboriginal people would be worse off than black people. So I find yeah. it fascinating because I mean, alcoholism, drug abuse, with especially with minors, like you just take that issue alone and you go like, well, we don't see this in any other component of society. Yeah, any other ethnicity. And I just thought it was very fascinating in that this has been a long, ongoing issue of them always struggling. Struggling, yeah, yeah. So I, so I just found it very fascinating. And I hope, you know, going forward in the future, we'll have a lot more episodes like this and guests that we can kind of, like, unpack this. Because this is just, it's just very interesting. And so... Yeah, it was at- very surface level... Uh, even the debate, right? It was very surface yeah, level yeah, discussion and, and of yeah, the issues. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but even then, but even then, you can still write something down and and have a place to start from. So, like for example, the Liberal Party said they would promise to fully implement the Indigenous Language Act and the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The NDP, the party, wants to develop an action plan for reconciliation based on truth and reconciliation commissions, or and the report from the UN Declaration. Uh, the block Quebec, what the block Quebecois was saying, the party has not released much policy on this issue. It does not call itself an ally of the first peoples and wants to fully implement the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The Green Party said Greens they think the Indian Act is racist and want it dismantled. Right, and then Maxime says uh, that. They want to replace the Indian Act, which he called was inherently racist, with a new legal framework. So all these things are proposed solutions, and I'm all about solutions, and I think it's good 
to analyze and really look at, okay, well, what are the, what are these solutions that people are offering and why haven't they been working? Well, and, and I think, um, or, or, or the, maybe some are working. I don't know, but like, even like, how do you, how do you measure progress at this rate? Or, you know what I mean? Or what standard well, of statistics is the most reliable? All these kind of questions are good questions to really look at the situation. Well, and I think you raised a, like you, the, the last question you raised, I think is something we don't do enough in politics. Um, and that is, you know, you said, how do we measure success? And, and the reason I was actually thinking about this a couple of days ago with respect to, you know, something like universal uh, UBI or universal basic income or minimum wage, like, you know, they'll like, we're, we're given these policies, they're told they're going to work. And then the problem is that statistics is so easily manipulated. Um, if you don't like, it's impossible to control for every variable. But if you really wanted to know the impact of, a, you know, something like minimum wage or a var an, any other variable, you would literally need to hold every other variable constant and say nothing else gets to change, only minimum wage. But that's that's not even realistic, right? And so, but <clears throat> the the reason why I bring it up is to say, like, the problem is we don't come out with a framework to say, hey, we're going to run this trial on a small, you know, like, hey, let's try something new with three tribes in in some area of Ontario or, you know, and, and let's see if we do something. Let's let's try something and see the results. Is it net negative, net positive and actually come up with a, a testing framework or an evaluation framework beforehand? The reason they'll never do that is because what they do is they gather data on whatever it is that they're running or doing, and then just try to manipulate it or present it in a way to show that they're they're good so they can get reelected again. <laughs> right? There's no interest in showing you that the policy they implemented actually sucked and we're going to have to undo it. Like, that is never an acceptable option for a politician. And that is the biggest problem here when it comes to politics in general. Right? There... The ability to recognize that we made a, a, an attempt on something and it actually turns out that it's bad, where we actually need to go in the opposite direction, that's mm -hmm. not an option. That's mm -hmm. not even within consideration. It's always about how do people perceive our actions and how do we make them think that we're going to be the one to do best for them next time. <laughs> next time, right, if there is a next time. Yeah, no, but uh, when I was doing some research, I was reading the book... I was reading the book, uh, Contemporary Political Issues, and it brought up an interesting point about Pierre Trudeau. Um, so when he became Prime Minister of Canada, one of his government's early projects was the famous white paper on Indian affairs, which articulated an approach to encourage the social, economic, and political integration of natives into Canadian society into Canadian society. But the critique as, uh, from Tom Flanagan's perspective, Tom Flanagan, uh, he's a researcher uh, from, a, for, I think, uh, with uh, the Fraser Institute. And so, so his specialty is, you know, Aboriginal studies. And he was saying that the white paper policy to integrate Aboriginals into Canadian society uh, didn't do well. Um, partly because uh, Native leaders totally rejected it because um, they wanted emphasizing to, uh, to separate 
to separate institutions and political power and pursuing the elusive goal of land claims, Aboriginal rights and self-government and sovereignty. So there's an aspect where, you know, the Aboriginal people are their own entity and they don't want to be assimilated and dispersed and ultimately disappear within the Canadian culture. And they want to be respected and, and, and be their own entity in their own state. And so, you know, forcing them into, or not even just forcing, but even just giving them incentive, financial incentive to, to, to assimilate isn't an option that they want to do. And another aspect of it is that, you know, as a black person, you know, not all black people are the same. Right? So our cultures are different. So um, Nigerian culture is not the same as Jamaican culture and any other um, ethnicity. So it's the same thing with Aboriginal people. All of them are not the same because you have like Métis, you have the Inuit, you have the First Nations. And so everybody run, you know, functions differently. So for them to have their own state would be very difficult to get everybody together and say, okay, well, look, this is your guy, this is your territory, and this is how your cultures function. So the solution uh, isn't as clear-cut or as simple as it seems. But, but, uh, and I'm going to take a page out of um, the Libertarian Playbook. <laughs> Uh-oh. Damn. <laughs> Joel's like, all right. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Yeah, yeah. So there's a guy named uh, Calvin Helen, and he is a uh, son of a Simshian nation chief. And he's a businessman. And a public speaker, best-selling author, entrepreneur, all that, empowerment guy, and so he he, he writes a lot on on these issues. And he says this: um, he says, "It is time for indigenous people to stop dwelling on the rancorous injustices of the past. We cannot do anything about history. Our actions now, however, can impact the future." Helen's words point in the direction of a different understanding of sovereignty, as when political philosophers talk about popular sovereignty or economists talk about consumer sovereignty. These usages refer not to state-like systems of organized authority, but to people making decisions for themselves, either as groups, popular sovereignty, or as individuals, consumer sovereignty. They are more or less synonymous with self-determination, As Helen argues, Native people have to take control of their own lives. They have to find and hold jobs, get better education for their children, and run their own communities more openly and efficiently. None of this requires an elaborate apparatus of government and vocabulary of sovereignty. It is more a matter of change at the individual level. So what what about that stood out to you? To have the entrepreneurial mindset in regards to, you know, use what gifts you have, provide a service, uh, and get money. And also just being a good steward of your of what what responsibilities you've been given or gifts you've been given. Well, and and it sounds like if I'm not mistaken, you're giving the same solution that you give to black people what you deem their problems. Right. Right? So, um what you know? What's interesting is in the follow-up question to the to the Andrew Shear question, um, which I already referenced, was about how would you work with provinces to respect Indigenous rights. Um, 
Bernier kind of had something, you know, very unique to say. Um, and I was, I was, again, pleasantly surprised that he brought something into the debate that was vastly different. And what he said was, no other leader wants a new relationship. It's all about status quo. He's like, extreme poverty requires reform. We need to change the current scenario. Um, he's like, the, uh, he is the only party to try to establish property rights. He wants a new arrangement. And, and what's interesting is in line with the idea of property rights, you know, essentially the way that these tribe, I, I don't know the nuances of how it works with every tribe individually or location and, you know, so um, give me a little grace with what I'm about to say in that regard. But in general, all of these tribes are socialist experiments. Everything is owned or sorry, communist experiments. Um, well, I guess not communist, but they're they're essentially they're socialist communes. Yeah. They're 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 a, you know everything is owned collectively, and they're having epic failure um, as a society. I mean, you don't really see many, if at all, uh, a high amount of success um, as a community as a whole. Um, and so, you know, if you take the concept of you know why is property rights important. Um, you know, you go back to the origins of the, you know, homesteading and, you know, Lockean principles around, you know, just different things with regards to how do we set up property rights. Um, the the simplest component of it is that you're supposed to mix your labor with property in order to establish that it's your own. And, and, and why is that relevant here is, you know, there is no incentive for someone to better their property when they don't reap the benefits of the property being improved, right? So... Being an entrepreneur on an Indian reserve is kind of difficult, you know, because your your ability to be successful is is largely diminished because it's for the community. It's not so much for you. And so, you know, this is the concern, in essence, around, you know, pursuing socialism within a country like Venezuela is you end up depleting the resources because there's not enough people creating wealth. Um, and, and I would say if you look at the indigenous communities, in general, there's a lot of people who aren't involved with creating wealth. And when I say creating wealth, what I mean is they're producing something with their labor that is worth more than just the cost of their time, which would be, if I'm simplifying it, the cost of their time is the food to sustain them and the and the house to sustain them, right? So being able to produce something that's worth more than what you need to survive um, is that idea of creating wealth. You're creating a benefit greater than the cost to produce it, um, you know, and, and, and again, I'm not so much necessarily blaming the community as much as saying we need to do something different. We can't just keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. That's the definition of insanity. Um, right and, and I would say that although the parties all indicated they had a plan, it was I thought it was very much more the same. Um, meaning we need to do something. We're going to try to do something, but we're not really going to do something different. Mm-hmm. We're just going to try and do more of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maintaining their culture, maintaining their... Like, these things aren't going to help them out of poverty. Right? Yes, by maintaining the fact that they have their own language... Like spending the money to do that, that doesn't help 
uh, in the long term. Yes, it 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 has um, heritage value, but if they die because they can't, they all starve. What does the what does it matter that you spent money to try to preserve their language? Right. Uh, I know I'm using hyperbole to kind of reiterate my point. Obviously, I don't expect them all to die, but but the idea being. You know, maybe two or three communities have to amalgamate in a couple of years because they're, you know, they're struggling so much. Well, essentially, maybe one of those languages ends up dying off anyways, even though we spent dollars upon dollars to try to preserve it. If we can cause them to be economically, if we can do things or we can change this scenario to to provide them the ability to be economically viable and self-sufficient, that would do far more than spending to, to preserve their culture. That would do far more to preserve their culture, if that is what they desire, assuming it is, than us spending money to preserve their culture. That makes a good point. Okay. You good. know, other, other people care about their culture less than they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's get them the ability to preserve it. They care uh, more about spending money, you know, on right, but, uh, but, um, third world yeah, countries. Yeah, right. But because for, of the political relationships they're developing. Right, right, and and that's my point. But for you know regular people like us, uh, for Christians, you know, who should care about our neighbor, uh, we realize that these solutions aren't working, and we should start looking for other solutions to help these people, uh, and not seeing the government as as a hope. And I think that was the point that I wanted to make about uh, the the Calvin Helen quote. Uh, quote, in that you know the government, no no prime minister, no government is you know you know can can give us hope, right? God has made us individuals, and He's given us gifts, and He has given him, given us Himself, in that you know we look to Him. We pray. We ask him to bless our work so that we can bless others and do do good work. We can still good. We can still do good work for others as individuals. And 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 that was just my my point that there there that that the, that the situation is not hopeless for those people or any people, and that you don't need uh, Trudeau to be your savior or Trump or whoever the case may be. And then now finally the final point was that um, the final question or the final topic we wanted to look at was. Theme five, environment and energy. And the question was, I believe we live in an age of climate crisis, and this is the last election we have before point of no return is reached. Furthermore, I believe that for many larger corporations that pollute, the current system of fines and penalties associated with the polluting is just the cost of doing business. What concrete plans does each leader have to address big business polluting? And now there was another question that was asked. So this was asked in the English one, but there was another question asked in the French one. And this sentiment was more so in regards to uh, foreign, foreign policy. And so he was pointing out that in China, they have a plan to use fossil fuel, a lot more fossil fuel in the future to build their economy. And so he was saying to the leaders, like, when you be, you know, when you come prime minister, what will you do to stop China from using all that fossil fuel that would eventually obliterate us? What can you do uh, to keep us from being obliterated by China and their goals for, 
you know, economic mobility. And I, I just thought those questions were very well loaded and dark when you're using words like, you know, this is the uh, final election and the point of no re- before no point of no return. AOC, Green New Deal, 12 years till we're all underwater. You know what I mean? It was just very dark and I just thought it was just a bit dramatic and sensationalized. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's frustrating. I mean, it's it, it, on this question, it reminds me, um, I'm pretty sure, if not all of the questions, at least half of the questions, the Green Party brought it back to climate every time. Right. It didn't matter what it was. We're talking about Bill 21, Indigenous people, climate. Mm-hmm. Like, climate, climate, climate is all the Green Party had to say. You know, everything came back down to, to climate um for for them anyways which i mean the very first question was like we need to establish a climate world trade organization right and <laughs> again know? but again that, that party is green right their colors yeah green. i mean they're called it's the green party that's what they're about right yeah it's it is what they're about right yeah. um so i mean that that said um you know my concern is you know we're 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 following or or sorry following is not the right word we're being presented with ideas of catastrophic climate change and 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 um a claim for a need for like i mean essentially it's alarmism it's it's a claim for we need to act today otherwise there's undoable damage and 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 i mean you know we've on we we had the episode on on our on our girl greta um and and you know the whole climate stuff that's been going on lately or recently with the was UN that episode fifty uh, five fifty five that'd be my guess I'll, I can can confirm in a second but um, the the interesting part about this all is that you know it comes down to you know do we trust yeah it was uh, episode fifty five climate change sola Greta. Thanks, Darnell, for the clickbait title. I love it. Um, <laughs> you know, it come to me. It comes down to another catastrophic prediction being made by by the climate group, let's say, or the the climate people. Um, catastrophic claims have been being made since the seventies. You know, we're gonna run out of food. There's gonna be too many people. You know, uh, the I, the what was it in two thousand one? Uh, Al Gore told us that all the uh, icebergs are gonna melt and we're gonna be all underwater by two thousand fourteen. Like, like this claim of imminent danger is right around the corner. If you don't do what I say right now, with respect to the climate, um, the this like my problem is. It's the same people making the same type of prediction who keep failing at their predictions, right? Like, if you want me to listen to you, give me a prediction and that you can actually prove occurred, right? I mean, in, in you know, one of the biggest things on our climate episode that, you know, it, like, or that I always say when I get into debates with people is like causation versus correlation, right? We do not understand the cause and effect of climate. Right? Why is the one job that we allow people to get wrong all the time the one where people aren't fired? The Which climatologist. Is, well, 
the guy, the weatherman, mm-hmm. right? The guy, the weatherman predicts the weather all the time, and he always gets it wrong. Why? Because we we know that the system is so dynamic, and and I know it's a microcosm, and I'm using a very weird, peculiar scenario with regards to the climate, the weatherman. But what I'm trying to get at is like, you know, we can't even predict n- next week's weather reliable, reliably, mm-hmm. reliability. You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, with you know, we know that there's a huge margin of error there. You know, if you're going to predict catastrophic climate change, and your 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 level of failure is is worse than the guy on the the weatherman, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I I hope that Canadians go, hey, do I need to live in poverty today in order for you to achieve this goal that you're telling me we have to do today, otherwise catastrophe will happen because that's the reality of it you know the ways that we achieve what they're telling us to achieve requires poverty for today right it requires you to tell the third world country no you can't have electricity because you're not allowed to burn coal Mm -hmm. meanwhile they need electricity so they can get clean water Mm -hmm. right you're telling me oh uh you know you're not allowed to do any recreational sports because you know that's that that money you spend on recreational sports now has got to go towards um green energy so that energy costs go up right your your energy costs are too low we're going to tax the most cheapest form of energy or we're going to cut you off from you know fossil fuels well oh guess what you have to ration your energy now you only get to heat your house 50 percent of the day because we don't have enough reliable energy sources you know oh you know there's so much hypocrisy within this debate another aspect of it is the lack of anyone who's you know pro climate ask them why they're not pro um, nuclear power nuclear is the cheapest form of energy we have most reliable because all the other green sources are intermittent sources of energy and I mean I know I'm kind of ranting and raving and I didn't do this on the climate because you're because you're cause you're excited man you're excited man it's man. like I dig into these things <laughs> I learn these things cuz I I want to own my own opinion I don't want to listen to what someone else tells me is true you know this climate issue is something that again hey what kind of debate are we having on this mm-hmm. it's about how much tax should we charge the people well, well okay I want to be clear first of all I do believe that the climate is changing and that we Agreed. should be taking care of the environment. We should be recycling and and using our compost and finding new ways to, you know, litter. Uh, but I think or it's not a, litter. Or yeah, sorry, or sorry, or, <laughs> or not litter. And well, maybe if the government wasn't in charge of garbage and recycling, we wouldn't have such a problem. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> I think part of the issue is this. When when the guy made the comment about China, I never thought about climate change in a global aspect. And like, well, it sounds like what he's talking about, you know, China is going to lead to us being obliterated. So the government should do something. That sounds to me like imperialism. That sounds to me like white supremacy. That sounds like to me like like colonialism. Like now now it's okay Uh-oh. to be a colonizer. Uh Oh, right. To go into another country and force blue boxes on them. You know, what if they don't want to do that? So what are we going to do? We're going to bomb them? Right? To to save ourselves? I the, the point I'm making is like, yeah, like having a wrong theory about idea can, when you start working out the logical implications of your I- ideas, you realize like, look, so yeah, is that the conclusion that we're going to come to? We're going to go into another country and force them to do what we want them to do? Isn't that what we're against? Right. And not respecting a place, you know, a country's sovereignty. So that's what I'm saying. Like, 
like the alarmism and the cessationalism of climate change can get out of hand. And that's why I think it's important to address this. Yes, we already did an episode on this, but we have to address it again because, you know, people are out there terrified. And especially, you know, what pisses me off the most is when Christians are terrified about climate change. Last I checked, mm. climate change is not an eschatology. There, there is no, you know, eschatological theory of climate change where, the, where Christ is going to come back on an iceberg. That's not a thing, man. We need to cut that nonsense out. The point I'm making is like, yo. Yeah, where, where's your faith placed? Right. And and that's my point. Like, like you know, our fear is in the Lord. And when the sky cracks, that's where the fear is. And that's why, you know, God says, look, man, take care of my creation. Okay, shoot. I'm going to take care of the creation. Versus, you know, watching CNN or uh, Greta Thunberg coming in and, and, and giving, you know, her, her, her spiel and, you know, you know scaring gospel. us. Her gospel and scaring us into um, these extreme measures of taking care of the environment. So we need to, you know, be more knowledgeable and discerning when we hear the rhetoric about climate change and remember that, especially as Christians, like, yes, God gives us a mandate to take care of the earth, but also we already know how this story ends. So stop letting people scare you that it's going to end with an iceberg or, or a big flood. You, the rain that's why we have the rainbow man right what did god say he, he he will not he will not judge the world by water it'll be fire this time right last i checked like when it comes to like climate change nobody's talking about fire falling from the sky and us being burned up that you know what i mean well that's why it's called the global warming well earth is gonna light on fire bro didn't you know <laughs> right um, but you but you get my point right yeah, it, yeah but it's just one of those things where we really look at it and we're like okay come on man like, come on, guys, let's smarten up. Let's read our Bibles and, and let's not get caught up in, in the hype of climate change. Um, but with all that said, Joel, like what what is the two cents you want to leave the listener with after all that we've addressed? Well, OK, the back and forth was funny. Right. Like, um, you know, the, the liberals, I thought, got got it the worst on the energy conversations. Um, you know, the NDP called them hypocrites. Um, saying he'll do one things and then does something else, like he's subsidizing oil, then he buys a pipeline, um, you know, granting exemption. And, and you know, um, the sheer piled on top of him was for that too, just kind of saying like, um, you know, three major pipelines have failed under his watch. You know, he sent $4.5 billion to the U.S. by trying to buy the pipeline or when he bought the pipeline mm-hmm. that now he can't even get, you know, put into place. Um, and, and, you know, the, the carbon, he said carbon offsets are just for privileged to keep polluting. Um, but the, one of the best zingers was Trudeau made a claim towards, um, the, he kept referencing, he brought up Doug Ford twice during the debate as like a, you know, token, oh, this is what you're getting. You know, anyone in Ontario, if you're afraid, you don't like Doug Ford, don't vote for this guy. So then, Joel, based on what we talked about and the debate, what do you want to leave the listeners with in regards to your two cents? Um, I think, you know, for the most part, something like this debate is is more um, entertainment than it is informative. Um, I think there's, and and partially because of the way that people consume it, Um, you know, the amount of time people get to speak. um, You don't really get to hash out 
why is this a good idea? Or well, you know, it's very much, uh, and partially because I think that's actually counterproductive for politicians. Um, you know, they they generally are presenting ideas, or they're presenting ideas based on what they think the people want. And so, you know, I think that this debate uh, really encompasses the you know, problem with our political conversations. It's m- so much about platitudes and, you know, platforms and not so much about the principles. Um, you know, that said, I think, you know, if you heard, you know, I think we'll use Bernier as a bit of a, um, you know, beacon for, if you heard things, because for him, I think, you know, he's, he kept bringing up principles like, you know, referencing the fact that credit card is full, we can't spend our way to prosperity. Um, you know, he's bringing in free market principles to actually what is he saying? Um, so I would say to the listener, for anyone who who heard Bernier and thought, oh, that's kind of absurd or that's kind of peculiar or that doesn't make any sense. Um, I would challenge you to to kind of think through or to try to understand why does he believe what he believes? It's not because he's a racist. It's not because he thinks um, immigrants are inherently immoral and, you know, anti-immigrant. Uh, He's, he's, you know, I, if I'm trying to give him uh, grace in, in, in interpreting what he's saying, you know, most of his stuff is he, he's trying to do what he thinks is best for Canada as a whole in the long run. Um, and I would say that's probably true for all of the politicians, um, that, they, they, that they try to present platforms that they think are best for Canada as a whole, but they're also trying to get elected. And, and so, you know, I think you really, for the listener, you know, if... If your extent of research and understanding of political issues is watching this debate, dare I say, you're ignorant. Mm-hmm. Like, this debate should not be your level of information because what you're going to be convinced by is a good speaker, not good ideas. And if you're convinced by a good speaker and not good ideas, I don't think you should actually go to the voting booth. (laughs) Because you're actually just listening to the guy who sounds good. The snake oil salesman might be selling you snake oil. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that said, uh, you know, there's plenty of people who believe socialistic policies are better for our country. Um, you know, and, and the sad thing is um, we live in a very um, interesting time where I think, you know, we're going to see some re- reformation to politics, to governance. Um, you know, the things like distributed ledger technology, uh, let's call it the second wave of the Internet, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, different things where, you know, AI, um, automation it's going to change the world we live in very, very rapidly. Um, and I think hopefully what we will see is the ability to have competing governments. And now we actually get to have competing ideas. Because unfortunately, we're in a world where you vote for ideas, they go in, and there's really no way to compare what would a different set of ideas resulted in. Um, because that would require comparing to an alternative universe where you kept everything else the same. But here's hoping for a minority government. Um, I, I dare I say I'd almost rather have a liberal minority than a conservative majority.
because mm-hmm. I think the conservative majority is just, as I said, progressives wearing seatbelts. They're gonna they're gonna grow government. They're gonna increase uh, over the long haul. It's gonna cause taxes to have to go up if the deficits don't start going away. The the long term consequences are only gonna come to fruition sooner. What's your two cents? So in light of you know the debate, I would like the listeners to educate yourselves so you're able to discern what's going on. Because, you know, our tagline is Six Sense Makes Change in that, you know, the exchanging of ideas and talking about ideas, those who talk about ideas more and know what's going on in the world are those more likely to make change versus those who have, you know, withdrawn from the political process or just society in general and just, you know, stay in their room and eat pizza pockets and play video games. You know what I mean? So... Educate yourself on terms and definitions. So define the terms, recognize the rhetoric. Once you've you know, defined the terms, you'll be able to recognize the rhetoric and know what you believe going in. That includes church as well. That includes going into the lecture at school. That includes listening to the debate. Because the Bible talks about being salt and light, but mainly the, the idea of salt. So when Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mountain, John, oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And what he's basically saying is that, okay, well, you know, maintain your saltiness by knowing what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false. Salt acts as a preservative. It preserves things from decaying. Our culture is decaying. We're seeing the, the changing of terms, the changing of words by rhetoric. It's being decayed and dumbed down and trivialized and relativized. So it's important to preserve those the good things of our culture, the, the liberty, the freedom, uh, the truth, true definitions of words. These things are important. So if you're educated and you're, you're making informed decisions, uh, you know what's what and you're able to still maintain a hope, and you're not being persuaded by every wind of doctrine uh, that comes from the political pulpits, but you're able to discern what's true from false and then still have a hope to say, okay, you know what? Let me help these Aboriginal peoples. Uh, Let me uh, set up this kind of organization that helps these kids with uh, who feel marginalized. That way our hope isn't in the political process, but that... Our hope is in God working through us to continue to make change at the at the common level. That, that's my two cents. Six cents makes change. But you heard me. Does that make sense? I hear-